What if the reason your gaming group is collapsing is because the Game Master keeps cancelling the sessions? Worse than that, what if you're the Game Master who keeps doing the cancelling? What can you do to stop the implosion of the group? Welcome back to Roleplay Rescue, the show about rediscovering your lost roleplaying hobby. My name is Che Webster, and today I'm going to make a confession. I might be the worst game master in the world. Today, in this final episode of Series 1, I want to talk about the barriers that stop a game master from getting a regular game off the ground, and the strategies that I am starting to use to correct this problem. I suppose I better mention that, for players in my Friday Night Roleplay group, all two of you, this episode contains major spoilers. Everyone else, listen on. Anyone who has ever been a player in either my home Friday night games or my online fantasy ground sessions knows that I tend towards some serious flakiness. Over the years, it feels like I have cancelled more games than any other GM on the planet. So what stops me from running a game? Personally, I know that on a Friday or Saturday night, especially after a tough week at work, I can be left drained and feeling exhausted. Sometimes real life gets in the way, a family emergency arises or someone in my life needs me to do something at short notice. Other times I'm feeling very low or actually ill. Most of the time though, these reasons seem compelling at the point of decision, when I need to decide whether to push on through and deliver a gaming session that night or whether to have another quiet night with a wife in front of the TV, or just go to bed early. The reality is that when I sit down and think about this problem, when I reflect on the decisions that I make, the real reason why I cancel the majority of gaming sessions is that I feel unprepared, or I feel like an imposter. Who am I to be running games for my friends? When I have the feeling of not being ready, it's easy to rationalise pretty much any barrier as an excuse to get out of doing the hard thing, prepare a session and deliver on it. The angry GM wrote some very interesting comments on this problem and he refers to it as GM burnout. Angry writes, quote, Here's the reality. If you're feeling tired or run down and you cancel a game because of it, that's fine. It's only fair, but it makes it easier to cancel the next game. And the next one. And eventually you tell yourself you must be suffering GM burnout. So you put your game on hold and you figure you'll come back to it within a month or three or six. And nine months later, you're wondering what happened to your games. GM burnout is caused not by running games. It's caused by cancelling games. See, games feed themselves. Running games is hard. It does take effort. But the more you do it, the more you enjoy it, end quote. I'd go further than that. Every time you cancel the game, you also raise the chance that another player will jack it in and go do something else. In my experience, those players don't just stop attending your gaming table. Many of them will stop enjoying the role-playing hobby altogether. I have lost count of how many players I have driven away from the hobby over the years due to my own fundamental flakiness. And boy, does that make me feel guilty. And that's not even mentioning the butterfly head. Butterfly head is the phrase my wife coined to describe the creative me. In my job, I am very focused and organised. 
colleagues comment on how amazingly organised I can be. It's a source of professional respect that I get things done. I can even be fairly creative as a teacher. In my hobby, however, I am crap. Like a butterfly, I drift from hobby project to hobby project, from idea to idea. Oh, that's a cool idea. Let's get excited about it and put in a day or two of serious hard effort to make that work. I'll even go as far as sharing my exciting idea with a group and try to persuade them to give it a go. If I'm lucky and make it to the first session with the cool shiny idea ready to go, it's a fun session. And then I feel like, oh cool, that worked well. But I allow myself to notice something else that's new and shiny. And I go around the loop again. One of the side effects of this butterfly head thing is that I stop prepping the new and shiny game sessions because my time gets eaten up with a new idea. Correction. I divert my attention to a new and exciting idea and fail to follow through on the cool game I have already set up. My players sigh and smile politely as I try to move the game to the next shiny idea. If you combine general flakiness with a GM who can't settle on a game and commit to it for any length of time, you end up with me, the worst GM in the world. It takes a particularly dedicated player to stick around my gaming table. The Friday night table has just two players right now, and I just did it again. Remember I mentioned we were playing Savage Worlds and I had started an Actung Cthulhu game? Well, it survived one session. The second session got killed due to a player dropping out, leaving me and just one other guy, so I cancelled because I didn't feel ready to run a one-on-one game. The mission would be too tough with just one hero, I reasoned. The third session I cancelled due to exhaustion, or rather, I was too tired to prep at the last minute, so I cancelled. I blithely ignore the fact that earlier in the week, when I did have some free time to prep, I allowed myself to go and read a different game's rulebook. New and shiny, shiny. Mm. The problem, ladies and gentlemen, is that I need to feel prepped. I need to get my act together. Now, I'm going to state up front that I realise mine may be an entirely unique situation and that, as listeners you will feel there is nobody else out there who suffers from the same flakiness or general inability to focus on a game. But in a massive attempt to overcome the imposter syndrome that I feel at this precise moment, I'm going to assume that I am simply not alone, that there are other people who know what I am talking about. With those people in mind, however imaginary they might be, I'm going to share the solutions that I have decided to deploy. It's my hope that, in listening to me try to solve this problem, others will find some useful nuggets to help them out of the pit. And that is a useful analogy for how this feels. I am deep down in a pit. There is no rope, and no one at the top is around to throw one down. But there are a bunch of materials down here, left by other adventurers, that I could use to construct a ladder and climb out. Here goes. The root of the problem is that when I get to game night, I don't feel ready. I am not prepared. The first part of the solution, then, is to be prepared. Simple, right? Well, no, actually. I've been wrestling with prep for years. 
I mean it. Years. I've read and tried every How to GM book I can get my hands on. The first, other than the advice in Redbox D&D and the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide, was probably Gary Gygax's role-playing mastery in the late 80s. A notable favourite has been the free ebook by Brian Jameson, Game Mastering, which contains a lot of great advice, some of which I now disagree with. More recently, I have read Never Unprepared from the Gnome Stew Guys. I have subscribed to John Four's role-playing tips on and off for years. There are many more, and I have found useful tips in most of them. The recent Savage Worlds game was a test of Sly Flourish's Way of the Lazy Dungeon Master, as popularised in his recent published book, The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. The approach was appealing and logical and, well, totally inappropriate for me. As the angry GM will tell you, Lessening the prep you do beforehand simply places the pressure to prep on the fly. Sly Flourish is a champion of the improvisational approach to role-playing games, and he seeks to minimise your upfront prep with the aim of A. Reducing the prep prior to play, and B. Making it less likely that you'll railroad or force one sequence of play with the players. Personally, I felt great about session one and ran an okay session, but I didn't have enough to feel ready for session two. On top of that, because I didn't know where the game was going, I didn't feel excited enough to prep more. Once one player cancelled session two, I lost all interest. By the time we got to session three, I wasn't at all prepped or motivated anymore. That's not to knock Sly Flourish's book. It's a good read and full of useful tips, albeit targeted at the D&D crowd, but I realised that his approach simply doesn't work for me in the long term. And I kind of knew that before I tried it, but I thought, don't knock it until you've tried it, because, well, I'm like that. Optimistic. My players will tell you that I improvise well, and that there is no reason I should feel compelled to prep a lot for a session. But those players don't really understand. Only one of them has really been a GM in the last time he ran a game. It took months for him to feel prepped and ready and his campaign lasted oh, maybe three sessions. So what do the players know? I mean, don't, no, no disrespect here. They simply don't understand. And I suspect that every GM is different in the way that everyone is unique and has their own strengths and weaknesses. Speaking of the angry GM, I've also tried his advice for prepping, albeit a mishmash of advice that I really hope gets ironed out when I finally get his forthcoming book. At the time of this recording, his tome is in the post. You'll find elements of his advice in my methodology, and I do recommend his website, theangrygm.com, for some ideas and tips. For me, however, the greatest and most illuminating source of ideas has been, once again, the Alexandrian. In short, the solution for my problem lies in game design, specifically in making sure that the games I run use tried and tested game structures, that are sustainable over the long term. Here, then, is my set of solutions to trying to save my gaming in 2019. Step one, I'm going to take my own advice and run all my tables as open tables. Anyone can come and play. I will run the game for whomever shows up. The focus will be on providing a good gaming experience on a regular schedule, not wrangling schedules and trying to create a game for one specific group of players. 
There are some issues to iron out, such as to provide support for the one-player game, but I aim to solve this with the judicious use of non-player character support. Step two, I'm going to run only the game structures that I feel either confident to run regularly or I'm willing to add to my toolbox. What I mean is that I'm going to take a step back from my self-image as a game master and make sure that I rebuild my gaming toolbox with tools that A, work and B, can be applied to whatever game I run. Don't worry if you're not sure what I mean by a game structure. I will come back to this point in more detail shortly. Step three, I'm going to commit myself to enough upfront prep to allow me to run a game for months at a time. I'm going to stop trying to build games that are run just in time, like some factory that makes widgets. Role-playing is about art, not manufacturing. I will treat it like art and commit to the creative act. In this, I am inspired by people like Gavin Norman of BX Essentials and Dolmanwood fame, who make time to create and share it. Thus, I need a set of easily extensible and reusable tools to help me generate cool new material, which brings me back to game structures. I gave a pretty solid outline of what constitutes an open table back in episode 3. I revisit the idea regularly because I believe it to be something that can truly unlock your gaming from the frustrations Justin Alexander outlined in his Open Gaming Manifesto. Quote, At the beginning of each month I send out an email listing the best days that I'm free this month for gaming. I wait for everyone to reply back. Hopefully a couple of those days will be free for all of us. But if they don't, then I'll go to the second best dates and start wrangling. Eventually we'll have a couple of days schedules, but if a conflict comes up, then we'll need to cancel that session. Other groups may have a large tolerance for handling one or two missing PCs, but I don't think I'm in error when I say that this is the way most people play RPGs now. End quote. This default approach to organising a game is flawed. The open table suggests that instead you provide a place and time and a game. Invite whomever might be interested. Run the game for whomever turns up regardless. Stop thinking about the game session as being about a specific group of people. Allow the people to be fluid. Focus on the game session as providing a positive game experience for whomever comes to your door. It's a subtle shift of focus as a GM but it's a vital shift nonetheless. What's needed are the conditions to meet what the Alexandrian lists as the key requirements for an open table. Quick character generation, easy access systems, open group formation, default goal, default action, regenerative or extensible content. Let me dig into those a little more and add how I am planning to make this work on Friday nights. I hope that by sharing, you'll find some nuggets of useful wisdom to apply to your own gaming table. Here's the context. I've got two players who want to attend right now. All the other potential players in my circles are either avoiding talking to me or too busy to commit. In other words, I've pissed off most of them and the others are too wrapped up in work, family and other interests to waste their time on role-playing. It's hard to admit but most of this is self-inflicted and my own fault. If you need a recap on why, wind back to the start of this episode. Right then, so I have two players. One guy loves D&D and fantasy games, and the other is fed up with fantasy games. 
One guy will show up whenever he can, regardless of the game, while the second guy is much more likely to attend when it's not fantasy. Both have families, partners and careers. One of them is a doctor, for crying out loud. Let's start with the basics. How do I choose the three elements, the rules, the world and the game structure that are needed to make a good role-playing campaign? I guess it's worth justifying that question a little. I have come to believe, contrary to popular belief, that role-playing games are built from three elements. A rule system, a world, what some call a setting, and one or more game structures. In other words, the game needs some rules in a series of game processes, structures, to allow it to function. The role-playing needs a world to imagine ourselves into and from which we can create characters. The characters, by the way, are a product of the world and the rules and the structure of a game. For example, if I'm playing Dungeons & Dragons, the rules, and I am running a mega dungeon, the structure, in the Forgotten Realms, the world, then I will create a different character to when I am playing Dungeons & Dragons in a political intrigue game in Eberron. It gets even more different if I'm creating a character to play Shadowrun 5th Edition, both the rules and the world, in a Mr. Johnson mission-type game structure. Thus, the first three decisions we need to make as Game Masters are the holy trinity of rules, world, and game structure. Coming back to my fledgling new game, some context is needed. The guy who is fed up with fantasy has expressed an interest in playing Savage Worlds some more, and also in the world of Deadlands Hell on Earth as I fancy some post-apocalyptic mayhem and quite like Savage Worlds, well, I like those rules enough to invest in the Adventure Edition Kickstarter big time, I can roll with those ideas. I also want to provide a game that my two committed players will enjoy. By the way, because post-apocalyptic games are not a million miles from fantasy games, I think the other guy will have fun too. That gives me two of the Holy Trinity. Rules will be Savage Worlds, the world will be Deadlands Hell on Earth. How do those decisions fit in with my plan to offer an open table? Coming back to the Alexandrians' list of necessities for such a table, I think it gets us a few good answers. Savage Worlds is definitely an easy access system. You can teach a new player what they need to know in a few minutes, no problem. There are some simple core ideas to explain and a lot of the detail comes through play. Stuff like your stats are dice which you roll to pass tests, using the wild die and getting a raise for every four points your roll is higher than the target number. Those are simple enough concepts. Character creation in Savage Worlds is a design system, which in my experience tends towards slower character creation as players fumble over choices, but there are good guidelines on using archetypes, pre-designed templates, to help players along. I can offer some archetypes for the Deadlands setting based on the notes in the Hell on Earth Player's Guide. If I add the idea of pre-designed equipment packs, which I learned from playing BX Essentials at school, and limit choices to the psychological sweet spot of seven choices, plus or minus two, then we can make character creation happen in sub-20 minutes. It'll take a little effort, but I can manage that okay. Once done, it's material created for the duration of the campaign. The rest of the criteria will come from the game structures I choose. But I will add that the most basic game structures, such as combat in Savage Worlds, are very slick and quick to play. It's one of the reasons I like the game so much. Plus, 
The combat remains tactical, a big deal for me and my ex-tabletop wargamer pals. We can use miniatures and terrain on the table, all things I want to bring to the new game. So, what is a game structure? I keep using the term as though you know what I mean. What am I talking about? Game structure. The structures of a game are the underlying aspects which break down what D. Vincent Baker of Apocalypse World fame describes as the conversation that takes place in role-playing games. The Alexandrian helps us when he explains, quote, There are two questions which every game designer and GM must ask themselves. One, what do the characters do? Two, how do the players do it? These questions might seem deceptively simple, but the answers are complex, and getting the right answers is absolutely critical to having a successful game session, end quote. While you might be tempted to dismiss this as an issue, it's actually the most overlooked element in the hobby. It has held me back from running high-quality games for years. The Alexandrian's essays on the subject, which date back to 2012, illustrate why this is important, but also why I am so late to the party. I'll put a link to those essays in the show notes. That said, what we want for a successful campaign are complete game structures. Let me quote the Alexandrian again. Quote, what we're talking about is a structure which can theoretically provide a complete experience. If the players choose to stick to a complete game structure, that structure will never deliver the game to a place where no structure exists. End quote. In other words, I want to make sure my game never has a moment where my players don't know what their characters are meant to be doing and where I don't know how the players can do it. To begin my new campaign, I'm going to utilize the two oldest and most robust game structures in the hobby. I am then going to reskin them for the post-apocalyptic world and make sure I know how the microsystems of Savage Worlds allow me to adjudicate them. Those two game structures are the Dungeon Crawl and the Hex Crawl. On the macro level, my game will be about the characters exploring the ruined, post-apocalyptic wasteland in search of artefacts and information. The game structure here will be a hex crawl, although I plan to run this without the players experiencing the hexes. The hex map will be an abstraction to help me as GM organise the gameplay. The players will experience the setting through description and action. On the next level down, whenever the players enter a location that needs exploring, I will deploy the dungeon crawl game structure. There will be maps of the locations and they will explore them, seeking out artefacts and information. Below this, in both the wilderness and the smaller locations, the players will meet with opposition. When necessary, we will deploy the combat microgame structure. On other occasions, we will deploy Savage Worlds' other microgame structures, such as the chase or a social interaction. The key skill for me as GM will be in recognising when to deploy each game structure and how to transition between them. For example, it's fairly easy to recognise a transition from the surface exploration to an underground base as a shift from hex crawl to dungeon crawl. We can usually see when to transition from either of those modes to the combat rules and back again. But there is skill in noticing the opportunities for other transitions, such as making sure it is the players who decide if any given encounter is to require a social, skill or combat resolution, based on their specific choices. Remember, role-playing games are all about choices. As an additional note, 
The third oldest and most reliable game structure is the mystery. I have never really mastered this game structure, however, and so I intend, given time, to begin to integrate the mystery into my campaign. It'll be slow, one mystery at a time, but I do plan to use them. After all, how else will I begin to expand my game mastering toolbox? I'm going to see if I can get the campaign to last six sessions first, however. Six sessions is the magic number I found in seeing if a campaign has legs. If we make it to six sessions, I'll go and work on adding a mystery to the campaign. Okay, so what does using the game structures of hex crawls, dungeon crawls and eventually mysteries give us when we want to create an open table? Well, in short, three things off the list the Alexandrian introduced earlier. Default goal, default action, regenerative slash extensible content. From the player perspective, the default goal is to explore the setting and find artifacts or information. The default action is to pick a direction and go, to explore. For the GM, the hex crawl and dungeon crawl structures give me content that is endlessly extensible, that can be easily add to it, and generally reusable. Locations can become re-inhabited or revisited, and the setting can produce encounters and random happenings through the judicious use of wandering monsters and such. Information and rumours will round out the tools in play. The only thing on the first list of open table needs we've not addressed is an open group formation. The Alexandrian explains, quote, because different players and or characters will be participating in every session, the open table requires a premise which supports the constant shuffle of personnel. In general, I found this breaks down into either A, expeditions, or B, organisations that can assign task-specific teams, end quote. I think in my Deadlands Hell on Earth game, I can have both options. Initially, I'm going to lean on the tried and true expeditions. When I drop a mystery into the mix, I will offer a specific task for the characters to resolve. And that's it, basically. That's how I intend to apply all the ideas and advice I have been talking about in this series to my Friday night game. My holy trinity of decisions boils down to Savage Worlds to provide the rules, Deadlands held on Earth as the world, a hex crawl along with dungeon crawls and some mysteries to provide the game structure. All I need to do now is A, prep all the stuff I need to get started and B, persuade some players to come and play. That's all. Except that this is not all. I also need to resolve the prep conundrum. This conundrum brings me on to step four. I'm going to stop leaving prep for when I have the least mental energy, such as at the end of the working day. I am going to prioritise my prep, schedule it and deliver on it. To quote the writer Daniel Pink, quote, don't rely on willpower, rely on systems, end quote. For far too many years, I have relied on willpower to provide for my hobby prep. This is a really crap idea. Human willpower is overrated. As Pink points out, what you need is systems. In truth, my use of strong game structures will provide most of the systems I need. For example, the hex crawl provides for content I can use over and over, generates some random events and encounters to add flavour, and the rumours to motivate players. What I need to add are the personal systems to keep this set of game structures running. 
That will mean using tools such as a campaign summary sheet to keep track of key events, using hex keys and location keys to record information I can deploy at the table, and making sure I take a leaf out of never unprepared and include both a brainstorming phase and a review stage in my prep. It also means organising myself to prep at the right time. As an extreme lark, someone who rises early in the morning, I am going to take the advice from Daniel Pink's excellent book, When, and do my most creative activities during the time when I have the most creative energy in the day. For me, as a lark, that's within the first couple of hours of the day. As my working day starts at 7am, I need to allow brainstorming time in the morning on weekdays, but schedule more detailed prep time at the weekends, at 6 or 7am for an hour or so every weekend to write stuff up. This will allow me to draw on my best energies and create my best stuff. Don't rely on willpower. Utilise systems. We've been talking about the barriers that stop a game master from getting a regular game off the ground and the strategies that I am starting to use to correct this problem. I've shared with you the holy trinity of game decisions that I believe lie at the heart of every successful role-playing campaign, the rules, the world and the game structure. I talked you through the requirements for an open table as postulated by the Alexandrian and shared a worked example of how I plan to save the Friday night gaming table from oblivion while I am reasonably confident that this will work, I have confidence in the theory that reality will come from the human element. Can both I and my players keep turning up to play? More fundamentally, does the game turn out to be fun? Along the way, I've been discussing strategies for prepping as a game master and some of the systems that you can rely on to succeed. While I fully understand that there are many GMs out there who will jazz with Sly Flourish and his improvisational approach to sessions, my recipe is much more intentional and aims to give the GM confidence in the long term. So what can you take away from this episode? What are you going to do with all this theory? It's my hope that through listening to the eight episodes of the series, you've had an opportunity to reflect on your own situation and find some clues on how to get back to the role-playing table. Maybe it's the advice of Gavin Norman or Carl Bustler on keeping it simple, using some older approaches to set up a quick game for some friends. Perhaps it's simply carving out a couple of hours in the month and hooking up an online session on Fantasy Grounds. Or maybe it's something more grandiose, such as setting up your own hex crawl and getting some friends back to the gaming table. Roleplay Rescue has been my attempt to create a new community in which we discover how to take back our roleplaying hobby and make it fun for everyone. I want to call people back to the table with the funny looking dice and get their friends to roll those dice with them. It's not fair that you have been asked to give up more and more of your free hours, all in the name of work or family, without being allowed to retain a little bit of space for yourself. Here's hoping that my attempt has found some success. So, this is it the final episode of series one getting this podcast off the ground has been a lot of fun and i've had a fantastic journey so far at the time of recording this early in 2019 i am simply hoping that the series can find an audience who get something from the effort put in my motivation remains the same to create a community of discovery about role-playing games in which people can find acceptance and a place of their own to help get you back to the gaming table 
What questions do we still need to address? If you have an answer, can you leave me a message and share your thoughts? You can easily leave me a voice message. Just download the Anchor mobile app, search for Roleplay Rescue, and tap on the messages button to leave yours. Thanks for your help. Remember, this is about building a community of discovery together. Please come and add your voice to the conversation. Okay, guys, um, I just had a delivery, the Call of Cthulhu starter set, which rattles really rather nicely, um, which is from Chaosium. And, um, you know, I've been a long time kind of fan of Call of Cthulhu, but I have to admit that ever since getting the seventh edition, like, I don't know how many years is that now, two or three years ago, um, I have not played it. <laughs> but you know what, this box might just be my, my kind of key into it. So, um, in a great homage to both Tim Shorts of Gotham's Manor and um, Colin from Spike Pit, I'm going to unbox this live. So here we go. I'm going to try, um, and Colin will appreciate just how hard this can be. I'm going to try and get the shrink wrap off. So yeah, let's get on that. Oh, goodness me. We'll bite it. Yeah. Okay. I've got a corner. Here we go. Oh, I love that sound. Okay. Lift the lid. Ooh, I do love the smell of a new box, don't you? Oh, awesome. Right, cool. Call of Duty starts there. I've got dice. I've got a little tube here with um, what looks like two sets. Ooh, I've got a blue-ish D100. D10 typey thing. And then a pair of D10... Uh, Parody Hall 100 D Dens. I'm just stuttering now. Aren't I? Um, D20, D8, D4, and a D6. So that's lovely. And a lovely what's in this box. This box contains everything you need to start playing Call of Cthulhu. Inside you will find the following items Book 1, Alone Against the Flames, a solo introductory adventure which deals with the basics, uh, sorry, which teaches you the basics of Call of Cthulhu as you play through a mystery. Book two, Call of Cthulhu Starter Rules. Everything you need to get started playing games of mystery and horror. Book three, Paper Chase and Other Adventures. Three starter scenarios to mystify, perplex and scare. And there's also ready-made investigators. Five pre-designed characters. Uh, blank investigator ships, four of those. Uh, I mentioned the dice and some player hand dice. So fantastic. And it's like telling me very definitely to read them in the order they are presented, which is absolutely fab. Uh, underneath that, I've got a advertising Call of Duty interaction fi interactive fiction game on the App Store for Meta Arcade, which is rather lovely. Um, if I have any one complaint so far, it's that the dice in the box have put such pressure on the books and the sheets that there's a sort of a dent in my character sheets, which is, uh, yeah, slightly annoying, but never mind. I kind of can't have everything. Tim will appreciate how frustrated I get by damage to books. I think he feels the same. So Against the Flames looks like a, you know, turn the page to the number type, you know, uh, solo adventure, which looks great and quite long. So I look forward to going through that. I might, you know, I'm really tempted to actually play that live on radio, <laughs> uh, live here on the podcast and kind of like uh, get you going. Introductory Rules book, which is quite short, so this looks like a summary of the game rules, yep. Um, including, by the looks of it, how to sort of understand all the character sheets and everything. That's good. Book three, 
paper chase and other adventures a huge like paper it's just like paper it's not a hard cover or anything like that soft complete like soft cover very soft cover um but nice thick booklet what are we talking here um we're talking 77 pages of printed adventure stuff which looks great and some great art as well so um and then some handouts Dear friends, in the years after the nightmarish events of that night in my youth, <laughs> hey, it looks like a good read. Oh, and maps too. I do like a map. Map of Harlem and other such things. All very good. Not going to spoil too much for those of you who are curious, but hey, you know, that looks pretty good. I'm actually pretty keen to go do the solo, I think. I'm going to find some time for that. That's really, really good. I wish, just wish that the dice hadn't slipped in the box and kind of pressed in the packaging on both the box which has got a slight swell in it and on the stuff inside but you know that's me being picky about packaging i guess there you go guys uh cool through the starter set unboxed and ooh, i'm ready to play i hope you enjoyed this episode of roleplay rescue it's the final episode of season one and i'm going to take a couple of weeks out to reflect and see what the response is by the time this episode airs I will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of marriage to my wife, Deborah, and, hopefully, away somewhere nice. Will there be a season two? I hope so. That said, it really does depend on you, the listeners, and what you want to hear from Roleplay Rescue. Do you want me to continue? Did we manage to create a community together? If you ever want to get in touch, ask questions, or share your point of view you can leave me a voice message. Just download the Anchor mobile app, search for Roleplay Rescue, and tap on the messages button to leave yours. I listen to all of them, and would dearly love to add more of your voices to the show. I'm Che Webster. This has been Roleplay Rescue Series 1. Thanks for listening. Game on.